Sansuk by Detter Mamfid. Chapter 6 Read by Compass Rose for the Dwells of Gothalorian. Thorin kept his word. He visited the chamber every day. Bilbo kept on with his life, busily pottering around his little hobbit hole and garden, blithely unconcerned with what his neighbors thought of him. He lent his mithril shirt to a museum, although hobbits called it a matham house. From what Thorin could understand, a matham was something that was meant to gather dust, interesting but impractical. A mithril shirt, impractical! He shook his head at the ridiculousness of it. Truly, hobbits were preposterous little creatures. Erebor underwent several ferocious winters. The restoration slowed to a halt as Dane fed all their efforts into keeping the mountains supplied and warm. Dory redirected his tireless guild campaign into organizing foraging and hunting schedules, and Bomber spent hour after hour in the marketplace ladling out bowls of soup and thick hunks of bread to all and sundry. Oin, poor fellow, threw up his hands in disgust at the new onslaught of illnesses and threatened to retire. Nori's leg gave him a great deal of trouble in the biting cold, and he complained vociferously to any who would listen. Gimli was immensely proud when his beard finally reached a respectable length. He kept it tied into two workmanlike braids, his thick moustache plaited into it. His hair he kept back in a queue at most times, preferring not to fuss with it, though on special occasions he brought out the golden barrel clasps his grandfather had made. Seven years after the final departure from Ered Lewin, Biffer woke up in the halls of Mahal. Thorin waited outside the welcoming sepulchre, Philly and Keeley by his side. The miner had been steadily declining ever since the Battle of Five Armies, and it was remarkable that he had lasted so long. A testament to dwarven durability, Thorin supposed. It had been hard to watch. Towards the end, Biffer had been barely present, drifting away to some distant place where no one, not even his cousins, could reach him. His words had disappeared, as had his Iglishmek. He placidly followed where he was guided, and he had to be helped in everything, in dressing, in feeding, in washing. Yes, it had been painful to watch. His parents, Kiefer and Bomris, and his uncle Bomfer, the father to Bofer and Bomber, were greeting him, and Thorin wondered how that worked. Did Mahal let you know in some way, or had they discovered it as Thorin had, peering through the waters of Gimlin's Aram? Eventually the door opened, and Fili looked up. He's here, he said, gripping onto Thorin's hand. Shh! Keeley said, and Thorin shot them both a look. Allow him some space, he said sternly. It had been ten years, but he still recalled how disoriented and overwhelmed he had been. 
He has just met our maker and his parents and will be. Zabadal Belkul, cried a joyous voice, and Thorin was rudely interrupted by a heavy, entirely naked body slamming into him and bowling him over. Zabadal Belkul, Melhalkel. Biffer, Thorin managed, spitting out white and black streaked hair. Biffer, calm down. Zurzu? Biffer grabbed Thorin's shoulders and smashed their heads together. Thorin reeled, stars sparking before his eyes. Ah, stop, wait. Abad, Abad, Sahab, Biffer crowed, and then patted at Thorin's face. Ah, Melhalkel, Thorin's Abad, Sahab at you. I never thought I'd see you again, and so unchanged. Why, you could skin me with that glare. Does a body good to see it? Thorin stopped struggling and stared at him, dumbfounded. Biffer, you're speaking Western. Am I? Biffer blinked, and then he smiled. There was a faint red scar where once there had been a huge stomach-churning dent in his skull, and he seemed far more lucid than Thorin could remember him ever being, if still rather odd. No, so I am. And you're naked, Philly added. On top of Thorin, Healy sniggered. Biffer beamed at them, pushing away from Thorin and exclaiming, Lads, Philly, Killy, Shamuch Ragalekaraima, how wonderful it is to see you. Good to see you too, Killy told him, pulling him to his feet. Be even better if we hadn't seen so much of you, Philly mumbled. Biffer simply laughed and tugged the boys into a hug, throwing his arms around their necks and holding on tightly. Thorin pushed himself up and rubbed his forehead. Well, it seems you slip back into Kuzdol every now and then, he said to himself, before smiling at the faces of his nephews as they tried to extricate themselves from Biffer's ebullience. Raising his voice, he said, And perhaps we should find you some clothes. No, perhaps about it, Keely wheezed. Biffer jerked away suddenly to stare at his hands with a perplexed expression. His eyes were completely focused for the first time in ten years. Oh, yes. Then he raised his eyebrows and looked down at himself with apparent surprise. I, all right. Though I could get used to this, you know. Rather freeing. You should try it. My eyes, moaned Philly. My brain, whimpered Keely. Abruptly, Biffer tensed, his head jerking up and his eyes widening. Wait, Dickus. Ahmad, Adad, Uncle Bumfer, where are they? Behind you, Biffer, said an amused voice. The maker recreated your birthmark, I see. Biffer laughed and leapt for the three Dwaros, and then he dragged them over to Feely, Keely, and Thorin, naked as the day he was born. Here now, Mum, Papa, Bumfer. This is my king. Thorin, this is... I know them, Biffer, Thorin said, and gingerly patted the dwarf on his bare shoulder. I met them before you woke. And I hit his majesty on the arm for taking my boy and his nephews on such a ridiculous quest in the first place, muttered Kiefer. We should get you fed, my little magpie, said Bomris in her soft, withdrawn voice, shaking her head as she smoothed her hands over Biffer's face and beard. 
She was a thin, quiet, black-haired Duarodam, with large dark eyes and work-roughened hands. She bore little resemblance to her younger brother Bomfer, with his creased and beaming smiles and his loud, jolly laugh. Hold still now, dearest. Kiefer chuckled. We need to put something on you before Mahal changes his mind. Uh, food? Biffer said quizzically, as he allowed his father to pull the shirt over his wild hair. His mother brushed it away from his face gently, her fingers lingering over the little red line on his forehead. We can eat here? Somehow I didn't really think eating happened in the halls of my ancestors. I we eat, Thorin said, trying and failing to repress a smile. There's food and plenty of it. Oh. Biffer frowned for a moment, and then he brightened. Are there flowers? You idiot! Dane groaned as he shut the door behind him and threw the crown into the corner of the king's antechamber. Thorin stalked after him, incandescent with fury. You absolute idiot! he snarled again. The gold is cursed, Dain, you utter naive fool. And he gave it to that grasping, oily, despicable man. What did you think would happen? The door flew open, and Dwalin stormed in, followed by Oin. You idiot, he thundered. That's our king, Oin muttered. You idiot, your majesty, snarled Dwalin, teeth snapping around the words. No, Oin, Dane said wearily. He's only saying what you're both thinking. Hmm? Oh, for Mahal's sake, get your bloody trumpet, Dwalin hissed, before rounding on Dane again. What did you think you were doing? That man was touched with the dragon sickness, any fool could see it. I was honoring our agreements, Dane said with a sigh, rubbing at his forehead. I gave it to Bard in good faith. And he gave it to the master of Lake Town in good faith, who ran off with it in bad faith. Dwalin folded his arms over his chest and glared at Dane. Thank you, Thorin said, throwing up his hands in disgust, and then he turned to glare at Dane as well. What would you have done, eh? Dane said through gritted teeth. We needed that goodwill. Not up to us what Bard does with his possessions. Those were the valued and cherished works of our ancestors, Oin said stiffly. My great-grandfather Borin made that helm. Now it's lost out in the wastes somewhere and we'll not ever be seeing it again. Once again Thorin felt the yawning pit of guilt open up in his belly. Always it comes down to gold, he said bitterly. Always about the gold echoed Dwalin, his brows knitting and his face like a thundercloud. Our heritage is the gold, and the gold is our heritage, and we cannot separate the two. He wore it when the dwarves of the Grey Mountains faced the cold drake. We cannot make its like any more. We've lost the skill, mourned Oin. Well, it's gone, Dane said brusquely, and we'd best get used to the idea. It was gone when we gave it up to Bard. We should not have given up Borin's helm, muttered Oin, lifting his chin. Aye, Dwalin rumbled. That was no mere pile of trinkets. 
I was forced to give up the armor forged by my own great-grandfather, Dane the First of that name, killed by that self-same cold drake, said Dane steadily. It is all we have left of a great king and a bygone era, but I relinquished it. You are not alone in this. I hear and understand you. I know it isn't just a pile of trinkets. I know it isn't greed or the gold sickness that's making you come in here and shout at me. I had Gloin and Balin roaring at each other for weeks over this. One fourteenth share, cousin. It is a vast amount. No matter how we tried to carve it, we could not avoid parting with some of our more precious artifacts. Did they demand more? asked Dwalin, his glare intensifying. Nay, Barafun, there is enough of us to withstand even two armies, Dane said with a wry glance up at him. There'll be no sieges at the mountain in these watchful days. Dwalin grunted, and then he sat down heavily. Amen, he sneered. Never understood him, never will. Oin's face was fixed and craggy, and his eyes were bright with outrage. That gold is our inheritance and identity and culture and history, given shape and form, he said fiercely, shaking a fist towards the south. Elves and men may covet it, but they cannot understand what it is to see your people's work, the craft of their hands, the breastplates of great kings or the diadem of a little princess, the things your father's father made and touched and wore, and to simply coerce them from us under the threat of starvation and war. Thorin let out a long, slow breath. No, he said in barely a whisper. Under the threat of withholding that thrice-cursed stone. Dane held up his hand and waited patiently. Calm yourselves, cousins. This is not the fall of the dragon. They are not homeless, and nor are we. We do not live in fear of each other, and the trust between our peoples grows. Slowly, to be sure, but it grows. We prosper. They would be fools to jeopardize our alliance with more demands. Aye, they can't demand our treasures from us now that we number more than thirteen on the Hobbit, spat Dwalin. Dane quirked an eyebrow. I think Bard is beginning to understand us a little better, you know. He wouldn't go a demand in these days. Aye, he got what he wanted the first time round said Oin resentfully, and he smashed his fist against his leg. If only they'd come unarmed. If only they'd sent the damned elves away. If only they'd asked and not demanded. We would have negotiated. Shazara, no need to dredge up the whole ill-fated disaster, said Dane, and his eyes were weary. We are honorable dwarves, and we have fulfilled our agreements with men. We had to part with some of our history to do so, and they were betrayed by one of their own. Thus the armor of the king I was named for lies in the wastes somewhere, along with Boren's golden helm and the ruby belt worn by the lost prince Fror, and the corpse of the master of Lake Town. So it is, and there is little we can do about it now. You're a damned fool, said Dwalin bluntly. Dane laughed his raspy laugh. Lie, probably, but practical. Thorin staggered backwards before landing heavily back on his stone bench in the chamber of Sansukhur.
No, he said in a hoarse voice, and his guilt and shame wrestled against the long-held urge to protect his people. I was wrong. I was wrong. But Dwalin and Oin had a point. He had wanted to save his people's inheritance, and he had been furious at the condescension of the Bizarun and their arrogant demands. He had indeed offered to negotiate with Bard for the ransom of the dragon and the treasures of Dale, if they came unarmed and without their traitorous elven escort. They would not listen, and insults had flown back and forth until Thorin could barely see through the red haze of his rage. Thieves, robbers, and carrion crows, the lot of them. In a towering fury, he had asked Bard what, if anything, he would have left for the dwarves, had he found the mountain empty and every dwarf dead. Bard had not answered the question. And then Bilbo had stepped into the whole convoluted, tangled debacle. Gold sickness, he thought miserably. Can it ever be separated from the desire to protect my heritage? Am I never to know if I am weak or strong? Oh, my Bilbo, what a mess we wrought. He put his face in his hands and wept. Years passed, and Thorin watched. He finished a suit of plate armor. It was attractive, functional, and deadly, with clean lines and smooth, polished surfaces. He placed it on a stand in the corner of his forge and lowered the helm over the top holdings and then tipped his head, regarding it critically. This had been his life. Beauty and skill, yes, but warlike, a life of defense and offense and bloodshed in battle, entirely dwarven. He frowned at it, and then he began to wonder what a hobbit might find useful and beautiful. He turned his hand to a set of buttons and failed rather dismally. Undeterred, he tried a plow. It was a definite improvement. What is that boy doing? Thorin shook his head in amusement. Your guess is as good as mine. They watched as Gimli, eighty-nine years old and full-bearded and as merry a warrior as had ever lived, clambered up the steep slopes of the lonely mountain with his full armor on. Crera looked politely incredulous. He must be touched in the head. That one has had too much sun. He's a fine young dwarrow, Thorin said, and then he wondered why he felt the need to defend him. Surely he hadn't become so fond of the lad. Fine young dwarrow or not, he's going to get sunburnt, she predicted. She was not wrong. Gimli was reddened and peeling by the time he made it back down from the summit, and Hrera tutted over the state of his braids. Terrible, she said disapprovingly. Look at that. Has the boy never used hair oils in his life? Probably not, Thorin said. He dislikes primping and frippery, as he calls it. Gimli kept moving through the bustling corridors of Erebor. Voices called out to him, and he raised his hand in greeting and kept moving. Though he was no doubt tired, he did not slow at all, and began to hum one of his favorite walking songs. His legs moved rhythmically and unceasingly. Finally, he began to slow outside a crooked sign shaped like a six-pointed star emblazoned with a pair of crossed, hook-pointed knives. Beyond the sign was a stone courtyard full of scattered tables, and dwarves scurried between them carrying platters with tankards of foamy ale. 
A cheer greeted Gimli as he neared one table in particular, where approximately seven rowdy young dwarves, all under a century old if they were a day, sat chattering and drinking. Picks, hammers, and tools sat scattered and propped around them, and many faces were covered in grime. "'Is this really appropriate behaviour from the line of Durin?' said Freyra. "'Dreadful place. Tell him to leave, Thorin, dear.' "'It is a tremendously appropriate place,' Thorin told her, folding his arms and looking out over the tired and happy faces of his people, relaxing and making merry. He could feel the corners of his mouth up-tilting the very slightest amount. After twenty-seven slow, painstaking years of rebuilding and privation— Harsh winters and hard work, his people made merry in the halls of Erebor. Freyra pursed her lips. Very well, she said finally. I'll reserve judgment, but mark my words, young Gimli had best behave himself. So, my friends, Gimli said and rubbed his hands together. So, I was the first to make the summit and back. Where are my winnings? The group of young dwarves lounging at the benches of Nori's tavern looked up. Is Loney not with you? one said. Gimli shrugged. I beat him. His mark was not there, and I have left mine where none could miss it. Gimli, son of Gloin, is now carved at the peak. I hope you realize that you are drinking in a mountain with another dwarf's name on it. I should start charging you rent. I suppose that makes you king, then? one laughed. Gimli rolled his eyes and waved that away. No fear. I would have to be blind drunk to want to be king. Have you seen Dane lately? He looks like granite pounded by giants. Besides, there are five others in the succession before me, and all of them are very dangerous to cross. There was a burst of laughter. Aye, presuming you managed to get past Dane. And Barazanthual, interjected another, and the assembled all shuddered at the name of the great red battle axe. And then there's Dane's son, the Stonehelm, laughed another. What's this my dainty ears do hear? said Nori, clumping towards them with a tray of tankards and a creased grin. Our Gimli versus the Stonehelm. Now that I'd pay to see. No, you wouldn't, cried a dwarf. You'd be running the books, you old crook. Why, we'd be paying you. Nori winked. Pack a lies, it is, my dears, and I'm ashamed to know you. This is not appropriate conversation. Freyra said, with towering dissatisfaction. "'I'm not fighting Thorin Stonehelm or anyone else, so lay off, you bunch of rats, and let a body wet his whiskers!' Gimli laughed, shucking his helmet and struggling out of his surcoat and chainmail. "'Climbing mountains is thirsty work!' "'See here, Nori, apparently it's Gimli's mountain now,' said one of the youngsters, taking a tankard from Nori and nudging him. "'Nay, it's my mountain!' Gimli said, taking a sip of his ale and leaning back on his bench in satisfaction. I very graciously allow you all to live here, of course, and I suppose I'll let Dane keep running the place for me. Oh, now I understand the talk of fighting the Stonehelm, Nori said, stroking his beard. Well, then, I'd give you two to three odds on Gimli versus the Stonehelm, but in the third match, I'm afraid, it's going to have to drop to one out of nine. And why, may I ask? Gimli said indignantly. I'm the finest axe man of my age in the whole of Erebor. 
Indeed you are, my little lord, said Norrie slyly. But in the third match you'd be fighting Dwalin, son of Fundin, and I don't much fancy your chances. A groan rose from around the table, and Gimli shook his head. Alas, he laughed. Well, I'd have to bet against myself, and you've already done so well out of me too, you old villain. Knew you'd beat Lonely, Nori said in satisfaction. All right, boys, pay up. With some grumbling, the assembled drinkers handed Nori a few coins. Thanking you kindly, he said, grinning broadly. Biting hard on one, he nodded, and then slipped them into a pocket. Sitting himself down at the table, he eased his metal leg out in front of him, and a knife abruptly appeared in his hands. He absently spun it around his fingers as he raised his braided eyebrows, now liberally streaked with grey. Well, my brave lads, not taking me up on my very generous odds. Gimli took another sip of his ale and licked the foam from his moustache. Me, fight Dwalin? You've got to be joking. He taught me most of what I know. I'd be warg food before the day was out. You'd be warg food before the minute was out, said a dwarf, and Gimli puffed out his chest in indignation. I'll have you know I'd last at least twenty, he suddenly grinned. Seconds. The table roared with laughter, and Gimli was nudged and slapped on the back. Nori lifted an eyebrow at his red and wind-burned cheeks and tugged on one of the braids of his beard. You're going to want something on that face of yours, he said. Like a bag, sniggered a dwarf, and Gimli kicked him under the table. What, said Herrera with massive dignity, am I missing? Because what I can see is your third cousin once removed drinking in a shoddy little tavern with his rowdy friends. Is that what we are? Thorin said, looking at Gimli with some surprise. Third cousins, indeed. Thorin, darling, Hrera said with a warning in her tone. He looked back at his grandmother, taking in her tapping foot and the glint in her hazel eyes. Nori was one of my company, he said simply, and her face immediately softened. Oh, I see, she said and looked back to where the thief was amusing the lads with knife tricks. He lost that leg in the battle, then? Yes. I'm sorry, my dear. She patted his cheek comfortingly and sighed. Oh, you stone-faced Durin men, if you would only say. Grandmother, he growled, and she simply laughed and tweaked his cheeks some more. Here now, what's this about your brother, Nori? called one of the youngsters, and the call was echoed by several around the table. Nori rolled his eyes dramatically. Do you mean the mother hen or the scribbler? Nori, of course, is it true? Which part? That he punched out the head of the miners' guild in order to become guildmaster and broke his jaw. Oh, that, Nori said dismissively. Yeah. There was a wistful silence, and Thorin covered a smile. Dory would be the first high guildmaster who was not of the miners' or smiths' guilds in over five hundred years. Oh, don't look so stunned. Dory only broke his jaw a little bit, said Nori. He'll have to get a couple of gold teeth, too, but it's not like he got his throat slipped or nothing. A little sigh echoed around the table, and Thorin shook his head at their longing expressions. 
His weaver companion was the epitome of dwarven male beauty, after all, with his silvery hair, classic stiff-beard nose, thick legs, and stout frame. Unfortunately for his many admirers, he was one of the many Dwaros whose heart was given to their craft. Dory loved his weaving, his brothers, his wines, and his tea, and had as much interest in romance as he had in cross-country skiing. Furthermore, he had a punch like a charging oliphant. Nori, please don't take this the wrong way, said one of the Dwaros a trifle dreamily, but your brother is a gold vein in a mud mine. Well, tell him you said so, shall I? Nori said pleasantly, beginning to clean his nails with his knife. Uh, how much do I have to give you not to? Nori grinned wickedly. Let's see your money and I'll name my price. You idiots really need to find a new obsession, snorted Thorin. And Gimli chuckled under his breath. Tell him. And we'll have Ori, my father and uncle, my cousins, Bofur, and probably even Bomber down here to glare at you and cheer Dory on, he said, his eyes dancing with mirth. I'd like to place a wager, if I may. Nori winked at him. Better believe it, little star. The company sticks together. The company are weird, said a youngster after a pause. That too, Nori laughed. Who's for another one, then? At that moment, a remarkably tall and disheveled dwarf trudged into the courtyard, his face beat red and his brown hair dripping from under his helm. Gimli, you swine, he roared. Hello, Loney, said Gimli pleasantly. Did you enjoy the view from the top of my mountain? I should tear your beard out, Loney said, slumping down beside his friend. But I'm far too tired. Nori, have a heart, an ale, please. I will knock some sense into this rogue when I have my breath back. Oh, fine words, Gimli mocked him amiably. You couldn't knock me down with my eyes blindfolded and my hands tied together. I should tie your hands together, you wretch, Loni said gruffly. Gimli, son of Gloin, in the year 2968 of our King Dane the Second Ironfoot, carved in runes two hands high into the peak of Erebor. And if that weren't enough, you had to add, Loni, son of Lane, here suffered humiliating defeat at his hands. You son of a mangy orc, I could strangle you. Disgraceful, Herrera said absently. I'll wager you a silver clasp for one of your daggers, Thorin, dear. On Gimli to win, of course. Thorin was too busy laughing to answer. Well, my friend, Dwalin said gruffly to his reflection, tugging at his grey-streaked beard, today I'm finally older than you. Thorin sat beside him. A hundred and ninety-six. You've beaten me by one. Gamelun Dwalin, they'll call you. A hundred and ninety-six, he sighed, and then he grunted. Anyone who mocks me had better like the taste of my knuckles. Thorin smiled to himself, a small, sad smile. Mukud Turgizu Turuguskin. Older than Thorin now, he shook his head. Ah, Mahal's mighty balls don't get sentimental, Dwalin growled to himself. Or lad tan your hide if she saw you whining about your good fortune. 
Dwalin. Mahela, Thorin said quietly. They sat together in silence. The pair of them had never cared much for words. Neither had they ever really needed them in order to speak. Malin stood straight and proud, his beard bristling. No trace of his usual kindly humour could be seen in his eyes. It cannot stand, he said in a low, hard voice. It cannot be tolerated any longer. Let me go, my lord. I'll take back our ancestral halls from those orcs, scum, and we will have our sacred places again. No, Thror whispered, and either side of him, Thorin and Thrain pressed against his sides, holding him up as he sagged between them. No, it is folly, such folly. Durin's bane stalks those halls, and the orcs that slew me grow in numbers. Stop this madness. Stop it, I say. Thorin, in your doy, said Thrain, looking up at his son with pleading eyes. Don't let that accursed mind take any more of our people. Don't let it ruin them. Thorin, please. Thorin met his father's horror-filled gaze and set his jaw. I he said, and his voice cracked. He cleared his throat and looked over to where Freren sat, studying his hands with a haunted expression. Aye, we need no more as Anulbizars. Dane straightened on the throne, his manner stern. We shall have no more as Anulbizars, he said, and Thror let out a gusty sigh of relief. Balin, we need your wisdom here. You can't leave me alone to deal with Thranduil and Gloin both. Thank Mahal for your gift, my lad, sighed Thrain, gently cuffing Thorin's head with one great hand. We have spilled enough blood trying to retake one home, Thorin said, trying not to look at Freren. No more should be spilled to retake another. Balin's shoulders tensed. The people speak of it with longing. They whisper that we are growing strong again, strong enough to take back Moria and return it to its glory. King Dane, our most revered and hallowed halls, the waking place of Durin himself. Do you think I don't know? Dane slid down on his throne and rubbed at his brow. The crown had placed a near-permanent dent on either temple, and it looked like it gave him a headache after a few hours of use. Thorin was secretly a little perturbed. Would he have hated it so much? My lord, Balin grated, and Dan interrupted him with a raised hand. Durin's beard, Balin, I can read as well as you can. Yes, Dimrildale and the clear waters of Keledzaram are barred to us. Yes, the endless stair and the mithril mines are lost and in the hands of filth. Yes, the great halls of feast and forge are stolen, and the seven levels and the seven deeps are the home of orcs and monsters, but Balin, we have a home now. Erebor flourishes once again, and the Iron Hills prosper. What did you risk your lives for, if not for this? I risked my life for my king. I risked my life because he called, Balin said, drawing himself up and speaking with quiet authority. Now, now I understand why he wished for this, why he had no other choice. It is a horror that cannot be tolerated and a shame upon us all. Dane sighed. 
I am not that king. Thorin's hand tensed on Thror's arm. I did not have the chance to be your king, Balin, he muttered. I was a warrior first, a soldier who led his people in exile. Statecraft, politics, treaties, compromise, diplomacy. I never practiced any of these. Dane knows more of kingship than I ever did. Listen to him, not to the memory of my vain pride. Moria is a glittering trap, a fool's hope. Do not do this. Thror shook with anger and long-remembered horror. Do not do this, son of Fundin, he echoed in a rasping voice. Dane slammed his hand against the armrest of the throne. If the people whisper of Moria with longing, then they also speak of it with dread. It is barely a hundred and seventy years since the head of Thror was thrown at Nara's feet. Barely a hundred and seventy years since the devastating war between orcs and dwarves, and damned if we haven't fought another great battle since. Do you suppose that we might see at least one generation die peacefully in their beds? he demanded. Balin's lips tightened until they were white as his beard. No dwarf would choose such a death. And yet I would see it happen, Dane said. Mahal's bloody hammer, Balin. We have a home, and yet our numbers grow only slowly. No, Balin, son of Fundin, I will not approve of dwarves throwing their lives away. Thorin watched with a sinking sense of regret as Balin stiffened in outrage. The old adviser turned on his heel and stalked away, and Thrain patted Thorin's shoulder. Here, he said quietly, help me with your grandfather. Thorin glanced over at his uncharacteristically still brother, glaring at the backs of his hands. Freren. You'll be all right, lad. It takes him like that sometimes. Thrain touched Thorin's shoulder again, and then together they pulled Thror back to his feet. Yet untasted wells. He stooped and looked in Miromir and saw a crown of stars appear as gems upon a silver thread above the shadow. Dane I and his second son, Fror, were killed in 2589 Third Age when a cold drake invaded the Grey Mountains. His elder son, Thror, grandfather of Thorin, then founded the kingdom of Erebor, and his younger son, Gror, took the majority of Durin's folk to the Iron Hills. The Longbeard line of succession in 2968 Third Age, Dane II Ironfoot, King of Erebor and Lord of the Iron Hills. Crown Prince Thorin Stonehelm. Balin, son of Fundin. Dwalin, son of Fundin. Oin, son of Groin. Gloin, son of Groin. And Gimli, son of Gloin.